So, um, <clears throat> I saw a very interesting video about a week or two ago, and it was a video of Vody Bauckham. Is everybody familiar with who Vody Bauckham is? Vody Bauckham? Wonderful preacher. He is, uh, he is, I like to think of him as the black version of me. Uh, he's got the big beard. He's in Africa. He does jujitsu. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he talks a little fast sometimes like I do. So we're very similar. At least that's what I've told him. But uh, he had a video, and it's a very good video. He's a very wonderful preacher. And he was saying um, in America, only in America would we expect or allow somebody, only in the American church, to participate in something for uh, an excessive amount of time and have no knowledge of it. And I'll explain. What he was saying is, if you went to a job site and you said, I would like to be a welder, what would you do? You're a young man. You're looking to get into the trade. You would find somebody who's been welding for 30, 35 years, right? And you would find that person and say, hey, I would like to, I'd like to tutor under you. I would like to apprentice under you. I would like to learn what you have learned and all the skills that you have learned for 35 years. And that person would take them alongside and say, absolutely, come, let me show you, right? But in the American church, only in the American church, can you come up to somebody and say, hey, here's somebody who has been a Christian for 30, 35 years, 40, 50 years. Here's a man who walks with the Lord, a woman who walks with the Lord. And then come up to that person and say, brother, sister, I'm a new Christian. I would like to apprentice under you. I would like to learn of the way that you have walked with God, how you have been carried and what you have learned. And then ask them maybe a, a, a deep theological question about the sovereignty of God or how do you study scripture? And that person go, ah, no, I don't know none of that. I'm no preacher. Have you seen this? I've seen this many times. That you could go up to somebody and you could ask them something about the Bible and they had been proclaiming to be a Christian for 30 or more years. Ask them maybe, how do you study the Bible? And that person look at you and go, oh, I'm no preacher. I don't know anything about that. I remember being 20 years old and a part of, in Virginia Beach, the largest college-age ministry. I was um, the, U, the college leader of the group. We had, uh, we had small groups, fellowships on all the college campuses in the area. We had over 1,500 college students that would show up to these events that we played music on. Uh, our church was one of the largest and growing and had the largest population of college-age and younger people in it. So we were, by all accounts, physically doing a tremendous job, reaching a group of people that were very difficult to reach. And what were we reaching them with? We were reaching them with music. We were reaching them with fellowships. We were reaching them with events, coffee. And the preacher of our church, uh, he sat down with me and another gentleman who was one of the co-leaders of this group. And he looked at me and uh, Tyson, and he said, what would you like as a college-age person? What is it that you want to know? What is it that y'all want? Why did he ask that question? He's trying to minister to us, right? He's trying to reach the people. And I remember literally taking my Bible and folding it and sliding it across the table. And I said, we want somebody to tell us what this means. We want somebody to tell us how to understand it. Now, here is a man who is a preacher at one of the largest churches in our area, the plan he put in place made it very obvious he had no idea how to teach us to study the Bible, to interpret the Bible, to read the Bible. No idea. That very next week, as a sermon for the college group, he opened up the book of Acts. 
and he read a chapter from the pulpit, read a full chapter, and looked out and says, any questions? And it was silent. And nobody, he had no idea how to take Scripture and exposit it and teach it to the people that were so very hungry to hear the Word of God. What happened to those people? Well, the majority of them that I know, as a matter of fact, I can't think any of them, are with the Lord or have any comprehension of what Scripture is. Because the preacher and the people around us, the leadership that had been proclaiming to be Christians for the majority of their life were incapable of teaching, expositing, relating the Word of God to people who wanted to know. Same for all of us. You may not be a preacher. That is, what are the qualification differences that God calls for in the Bible between a, a preacher, a pastor, and a deacon? What is, it, what is the qualifications difference? What does God call for for a deacon versus a church member of Christ? There's one difference. A deacon is just a church member who is being put in a position. A pastor, the difference between a pastor and a deacon when you look at the qualifications is his ability to preach verbally to a group of people. That's it. So, is a preacher called to exposit the word of God, to be able to interpret it rightly, to be able to, to understand it? Is a preacher called to be able to to coalesce all of that information and present it to people from a stage? Yes. And so for you, as a member of the body of Christ who has been saved for so long, some of you, it is every church member's responsibility to be able to properly exposit the Word of God, to properly read it, to study it, to interpret it, and to apply it to your life and those people whom God has given you to minister to. That's the only difference. You are doing it from your heart and from your home and to your family, to your children, and a pastor is doing it from a pulpit. So this is incredibly important. And what I want to talk about this week for some time is how we do that. Last time, I kind of related the importance to it, just like I did this morning. And we talked a little bit about uh, the errors, and I think maybe I led some confusion on that. Contextualization, right? I did an entire section on how uh, people get it wrong because they put the context, personal, modern context, as the, pro the priority of the passage. That's what, and I said, this is a bad thing. And then, but I also said context is important. Well, let me explain. There are three parts to a proper expositional sermon. First and foremost, there is the exegesis. Exegesis is a very uh, fancy-sounding word. Feel free to use it. You'll sound very smart. I like to use it whenever I'm, I make myself look foolish in some way. Exegesis. What does that mean? That means to pull the meaning from the text. Exe, to pull from. Jesus, the same kind of word from Genesis, from the beginning, from the text itself. So we are pulling the meaning from the text, not applying our meanings onto the text. The difference is... I'm going to the Bible and saying, what do you tell me? Versus going to the Bible and saying, I want this to mean this because I feel like preaching on this. Right? Three parts. Exegesis, that is the primary step. Number two, there's a theological reflection where we take it and we apply what we have pulled from the specific text and we apply it to the whole picture. The entire theology. What does the whole Bible mean? Right? You may be looking on a passage uh, say you're studying Matthew 18 and you're looking at, at church discipline. Well, you may pull from that passage in Matthew 18 a specific 
order of events and how God wants to do things in his church in a proper function. But then you step back in theological reflection and you say, how does this relate to Jesus, right? And then there's the third part. Then the third part is the contextualization. What does that mean for today? What does that, how do I apply this to the people that I am preaching to? How do I apply this uh, to those in the church? And we all do this. You have done this. If you're a parent, you have done these very things. How do I know? You've had kids. You've gone to them and you said, hey, don't sin that way. The Bible says this. This is what Jesus says. And this is how you do it, right? You've done these very things. So it's a three-part stool upon which we stand the expository sermon. And if we're doing it wrong, we're taking that stool and we're making one leg out of place. And that one leg may be far too big and it's far too long, so you're trying to sit on the stool and you just end up toppling over. We can't make the modern context and what it, the, the meaning to the people to be the primary thing. Otherwise, we have an awkwardly balanced stool and we just fall over. So that was what I was trying to explain last time. Contextualization and context to us is important, but it is not the primary thing. So I want to discuss now how do we do this? First part, exegesis. What does that mean? How do you do that? I think many of you may already know some of this stuff intuitively. But I want to give you some some real processes on how you can do this and, and what you can look for when you are sitting under and listening to sermons here in this church. And that's important. It's important. I listened to some, uh, some pastors talk to Mark Dever. You know, he has, uh, he's had a couple of instances where people in his church have come up to him and said, mm, I think you messed up here expositionally on this. And he, he's messed up. Uh, I have. Uh, I think we all have. It's important. It's not just that you take whatever you can and, uh, and it's, it's if they, we mess up, oh, well. Well, it's part of your job as a as a as a balance to the church, is to keep the people who are preaching here in proper alignment with the Word of God. So you have a role in this as a church member. It's very important. So we have to say, what is exegesis? Well, first off, we have to keep the first things first, right? You're playing baseball, you hit the ball, you run to second base, you're out. You're playing baseball, you hit the ball. The first thing you do is you run to first base, second, third, and then home. That's how you score. You miss any of those bags, you done messed up. You run to third base first, like I used to, you done messed up. First things first, faithful preaching by assessing the biblical text's original audience and the text's purpose for those readers, right? I can't apply what the Bible was instructing if I don't understand what it was first instructing, right? And to the people it was first instructing it to. They have a different, they had a different culture. They had a different context. They had a different understanding. Words meant a different thing to them, right? Uh, And we see that very much now in our modern cultures. Uh, Irish, y'all know my wife. Her first language is Tagalog. And and English is her second language. And, uh, you know, words to her, sometimes she has to come to me and say, "What, what does this word mean to you? Because she's trying to grasp it as a, as a secondary understanding, and she doesn't understand the full grasp of it, of what it means to, to us in our original context. And same for me with her. There's words that have no English translation. So it's important 
that when you're understanding something, you understand it in its original context. Who were the, was the original audience? Who uh, was God speaking to when he wrote this text? And what was he telling them? The first audience is our first concern. You understand? Uh, for example, as we hear that, uh, that passage, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Man, that's a, that is a Facebook famous Bible verse. I, th- I think that one had, may have surpassed John 3.16 in the Super Bowl. It really has. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You take that in your immediate context, what is that? Well, absolutely I can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to go tell my boss to give me a million dollars. God can help me do it, you know, or God can help me get a Mercedes, you know, these things. And it's completely out of context to the fact that God has just given that very verse and that very line to a people of Israel who's getting ready to go into captivity and suffer greatly. Well, it means something different in that context, doesn't it? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a big difference between coming down to somebody who, uh, who says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so I'm going to go out here and I'm going to earn millions of dollars versus going to somebody who's got cancer and they're going in for their 10th chemo treatment and come by and saying, hey, you can do this. That's a completely different context, completely different meaning. The first audience is the first concern. This establishes the biblical context as the meaning of the text, right? You've been, we've been Christians for a long time. You've been walking with the Lord for a long time. You need to be able to present the biblical text properly. What does it mean? Why doesn't it mean that? Know how the text fits in with the meaning of the whole book. Let's not forget that when you read a Bible verse, when you read a passage, that it fits into a whole book. We don't just take a line out of the book and, and put to it an entire meaning that has uh, no sense with the rest of the book. You do that, and then you've got a Joel Osteen sermon. Which I, don't, I don't even know if he uses Bible verses anymore. Too, not enough time. So the Bible verse that you are expositing, that you are preaching on, that you are teaching on with your children, well, that goes into a whole book itself, and it has a whole meaning. It was a letter written by one person, and he had a beginning and an end, and he had a purpose for that entire book. And that book sits within the perfect context of 66 other books called the Holy Bible, right? And it has a meaning. And what is the meaning? Well, the meaning of the Bible, everything points to Jesus, right? So know how the text fits in with the meaning of the whole book. See the structure and the emphasis in relation to each other. How was the author uh, outlining this? Why was he doing this? Why did, in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, why did Matthew start off with an entire genealogy? Why? Does it matter to me? Okay, you say Jesus is the Son of God. I, that's good enough for me, right? The Bible has said it. I, that's all, I skip over to chapter 2 and let's just move on. Well, what is that genealogy for? Well, the people of Israel were incredibly detailed when it came to genealogies. Why? Because the Old Testament prophecies specifically went along with who came from who. Out of the line of David shall come a Messiah. So they were very, very specifically detailing this genealogy because it mattered to the Jewish people who would hear that genealogy and say, wait a minute, you're telling me that Jesus comes from the line of David? Oh, well, now I'm listening. Now I'm listening. This matters. 
Genealogies matter. God put them there for a reason. Contextualization, as I said, it is important, but that's for later in the process. That's at the end of the process. When we get to the Bible, our first response is not, what does this mean to me? Guidelines for the course. Let's keep the first things first. The original context of Scripture is most important. Uh, Take a time period to observe the text. Take time with the text. Observe and empathize with what it meant. This is something that took me a long time to do. I'm, I like to get things done. I like to move quickly. I want to understand something. And if I don't understand it, you know, I just want to move on. I, want to, I like to complete things and, and wrap my head around them. Porter is very much like me when it comes to that. Um, I want to grasp it quick. I don't know why. Uh, but are you planning to be saved until the end of your life? Is this something you intend to be doing for the rest of your life? What is it to spend? You're just like, well, you know, I don't have the time of a pastor to spend 30, 40 hours a week preparing a sermon. Okay, but do you have 30 or 40 hours over the next two months? Right? And then also the question, pastor, Tim, Isaac, how much time are you spending in this text? Right? Are you meditating on the text? Do you really understand the text? making sure that we don't preach something that we don't comprehend. Uh, take time. Observe the text. Chew on it. Listen to it intently. Search out for the terms in the text uh, out of the whole chapter. Broaden the picture of the text. Attach the vocabulary to the context for the whole book. If, uh, if you're reading through Hebrews and you constantly hear uh, specific words, right? You start to see specific themes, the supremacy of God, the supremacy of God, the supremacy of God, right? Well, what, why do I keep seeing this over and over? Let me, let me outline this. Let me write this down. Let me take some time at it. Let me make some effort at it. Uh, pray. To preach, to learn, to study, I need the Holy Spirit's help and are at his mercy. Don't you? I do. Have you ever been uh, in a situation where you feel like you open the Bible and you read it and just you're just, it's flat to you? I've read it 27 times. <laughs> you sit there and you're just like, I'm getting nothing. I need the Holy Spirit's help. And sometimes uh, we have, may have gotten too confident in ourselves, in our own minds, and perhaps the Holy Spirit allows us to go through that. Why? So that we can pray. It is the revelation of the Holy Spirit that saved us. It is the revelation of the Holy Spirit that brings us closer to God. It is the revelation of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us and gives us that awe in him. I still can't see the spirit world. I still can't see everything. But the Holy Spirit can show me things in my heart that I can't even verbalize. I need him. Pray. Pray when you read the Bible. Take time to, it's good to just read. That's a good thing. But it's also important to study to chew on, to meditate on the Word of God, to take a passage and say, let me just dig into this book. Let me just dig into this passage. Give the biblical context control of your understanding of the Bible. Give the biblical context control. Historical context is something that concerns the circumstances or the situation that prompted this text. A uh, good example, Matthew uh, chapter 1 through 3, we see the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see the entire, uh, we like to refer to it as the Christmas story, right? 
And then we see this whole passage where it's like, okay, well, the wise men come. They speak to Herod. And all of a sudden, Herod goes into a panic mode. To be honest with you, if we look at our modern depiction of that situation, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why in the world would three wise men who look like they're scholars at the local university, you know, who are wearing some kind of fancy garb and some tassels, show up into a king's chamber and say, yeah, we're looking for this guy. He might be king. We don't know. You know, we're looking for, for we saw a sign. He's going to be there. Three guys showing up to this mighty king in his court palace. And then all of a sudden, him going into such a panic that he kills every two-year-old and under in the entire area, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But when you go back into the historical context and you realize, wait a minute, who were these three? Was there, was there three wise men? First off, the Bible doesn't say three. What were they? They were Persians from Persia, a mighty nation next door. The, just one of the warring primary nations with Rome. They're massive. And these wise men were a part of uh, an entire group within Persia that had tremendous influence. So when they came, they, they came on horses. They came on cavalry. They probably sparked fears of war because it's this massive delegation coming and saying, hey, we've seen a sign in the sky. Could you imagine Herod, a local ruler, who has a, a lust for power, seeing this mighty nation come to him and say, hey, we have come to find the king. All of a sudden, the panic seems a little more real, doesn't it? History. We can't forget that these things are real, that they really happened when we read them, that it's this material that really existed. When I've been reading with my sons every night, Genesis, when it talks about Noah, Entering into the ark and the flood killing everything and the whole world being succumbed to this. This is a historical fact, something that really happened. And we can't let go of that just because we want to focus on theology. The theology is based upon what God has historically done. You have to understand the history to understand the context. Understand ancient culture. Firm up your grasp of biblical history. Piece together the situation faced by the first audience. And then look at the literary context. Is, this, is, is it simply the text around the text, right? What is, I'm looking at this text and I'm trying to understand this passage. Well, what does it say all around it? Let me see what, this, what, what theme that Paul is teaching about here. Let me look at what Moses was saying and what was happening in the situation all around him. What does the literary context do? It considers the author's writing and his editing strategy. Why has the book been organized this way? Why do the verses and chapters that proceed and follow, and what do they say? Why is this passage here in this place? Well, how does my passage fit together in this whole section? And what situation was being faced here by this first audience? And this I, 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 I love. Um, this author from the Nine Marks, he said, it's a concept. He said, listen for the melodic line. Ah, this is stuck with me. Listen for the melodic line. If I played for you the first 15 seconds of a score from a famous movie, you'd probably get it. I could do the example right now, but I didn't have it ready, so I'm not going to do it. Matter of fact, if somebody, if I can hear the last of the Mohicans soundtrack, I can hear it from a distance. I know exactly what it is, right? And then if you listen to the movie, you hear that melodic line of that specific score in Last of the Mohicans. You hear it through the whole movie. They just play it different ways. But there's always this melody line that rides and, and brings the whole movie together into one cohesive unit. That's what the melodic line is. 
it's a short sequence of notes that form a distinctive portion of the song. A good example, uh, Hebrews has a theme, and it's woven through the whole text, right? I think Isaac did a tremendous job at this. He always kept uh, the first thing first. He kept the melodic line. Every week we come, Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ. You know, he, he kept it in the form, forefront, and the entire book of Hebrews had within it woven this melodic line, the same purpose, right? Uh, you read any of the books of the Bible, they all have it. The book of Jude. The book of Jude has, it has a, a melodic line through it, even though it's just very small. It's about keeping yourself in the faith. That word, he uses it over and over. Keep, keep, hold fast, keep yourself in the faith. And just within just a few verses, you see a melodic line of an intention of what the author is trying to present. The best preachers are the best listeners. And exegesis takes part in the ears as well as the mind. Stepping back from the details, stepping back from all the commas and the grammatical highlights, and then stepping back and just listening. What is this saying to me? What is, this, what is God saying here? And each book has one. It's an essence that informs. Each passage in the book will serve the melodic line of the book as well. And if that is taught from the pulpit... Specifics may be forgotten, but the congregation will remember how important the themes were. And I know most of you in here for the Hebrews uh, study that Isaac did. I, I, I feel like, and I proved it to him <laughs> this week, but I have a general grasp of if I come into a conversation with somebody who wants to know about, well, is Jesus the only God, or is he, well, what about him versus these other gods? That I have a text that I can go to that points to the supremacy of Christ. If somebody is, is erring on the lines of they're, they're looking to the Old Testament for answers and the rituals of the law, or they're looking and they want to go back to that kind of format because they like the, the ritual of it, that I have a text that goes and says, hey, look, the Old Testament has its purpose, but now we have something new and better, right? Do, I do not, I guarantee you Isaac remembers more of Hebrews than I do. He sat there and put his, put his face into it every day. But after two years of hearing him preach on it every week and maintaining that melodic line, maintaining that theme, preaching from that context, I have a very good grasp on what Hebrews means, and I can go find it pretty quickly. So <clears throat> how do we find the melodic line? We've got a few minutes to cover this. Uh, here's some, some simple things. Write these down. These are, these are advice. There is, I have no scripture to tell you this is required. And, and you may have a different method. Uh, other preachers may have different. Uh, I know Stephen Lawson has a very different method than this. But uh, this is some, some helpful tips to kind of help you get started. Or, and to also to pay attention to those who are preaching from this pulpit. Uh, how do we find it? Cover to cover. Well, read the book from start to finish. In one sitting, if you can. Become familiar with the book. Know it on its own terms. Know it on its own themes. Listen to the book. Read the beginning and then read the end. If you listen to a musical composition, uh, it tends to begin with a, a kind of melodic refrain and it ends on the same melodic refrain. Amazing grace. What do we do? What do, we do? We, you hear it at the very beginning as we come into it and then we hear it at the end. Right? You hear that? Wow, that's amazing grace, right? 
And then you go to the end of it, and they end on the same melodic refrain. And it's an it's a easy way to kind of help you get a, a grasp of the whole thing. Read the front, read the back, and then kind of put it all together with the middle. That's how I got through college, as a matter of fact. Uh, read and reread the beginning and end to see what emerges. Common words, common things. Do you keep seeing the word covenant over and over? Do you keep seeing the word kingdom over and over? What do you keep seeing? Number three, repeated words, concepts, and phrases. Tune your ear now to the content. Has what you've seen emerge play a significant role in the shaping and the body of the letter? Are these, these thematic elements, these frames, are they helping shape out an idea for you, a melodic line? Uh, purpose statements. Look for purpose statements. Finally, reread the letter in hopes of hearing a purpose statement. This will set the tone and the urgency of the writing. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Let me pull this up here and show it to you. <clears throat> Would you consider this a purpose statement for the whole of Hebrews? He says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the, re- he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There we go. Found a purpose statement. Found something within the Bible where this writer is stating a thesis statement, a purpose statement. This is what we're going to talk about. There are these things kind of coming back to you from, from high school, college, grade school, these are very much things that you learned when you were going through literature courses in school. Use more than one tool to search this out. You need some help? Grab a commentary. There's plenty of good commentaries. Uh, you have a MacArthur Study Bible. Read some of the little notes at the bottom. Those are helpful. You, you're curious if you're on the right path. Do I have the right thing here? Well, I do this, I go and I'll find a couple commentaries. Let me, let me look at some, some tested men of God and make sure that they are seeing and saying the same things that I am, right? This will help sharpen your melodic line to include the purpose and the meaning. Then, see the structure, see the emphasis. Remember, we are giving the biblical context control. We want it to speak, not us. If you come away from listening to me preach a sermon from, a pul- from this pulpit and you said, wow, I really felt like Tim had an agenda, come tell me. Because it, it should never be that way. It should never be my own agenda. It should be the biblical context giving meaning to the passage. And I mean that specifically when I'm preaching from a passage. There's nothing wrong with a pastor coming up there and sharing his heart and his love and his shepherding influence for his people. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we're taking the meaning of Scripture and then you, you can see that it's not really, like, well, I feel like that's not what that means. Well, you have a, you have a, a sanctifying influence on leadership here. This is a congregationally ruled church. So how has the author organized the text? Are we working to understand its structure? What does that reveal about the intended purpose and the intended emphasis? We must see the foundation in what it is built upon 
and each structure that is built upon that to properly lay the groundwork of the soul to last in this battle. You don't start building a house with the roof, right? As uh, Paul Washer gave an example at the worship conference, his father was a barn builder. He said that he would spend days out there laying line, running tape, putting stakes in, and working on it. And after days, he would look at his father and say, I, can we just start building? And he looked at him and said, son, if the foundation is off, the building will never stand. Right? So when we're preaching and expositing scripture, this is the foundation. If we find ourselves foundationally off in an area of our theology, when we find ourselves in the point where some heavy winds are blowing, we crumble. Every text, every single text, it has a structure. It has a purpose. It's Holy Spirit inspired. It's amazing, amazingly genius. Uh, the structure reveals the emphasis. My sermon and every sermon should be rightfully submitted to the shape and the emphasis of the text. It is empowered preaching that rightfully submits the shape and emphasis of the sermon to the shape and emphasis of the text. Pastors have to do this. They have to grasp the skeletal structure of the text. Without it, there is no clarity in what you're preaching. Use reading strategies that work well anywhere. Right? Put together a reading strategy for yourself. Uh, here's, a, here's a good one. First, work from a word-for-word -word translation of the text. You know, I, I remember being newly saved and finding a, a concordance. My father gave me a concordance. And so I would go and I would look up Greek words. You don't have, I, I haven't been to seminary. I haven't been there. I haven't gone through semesters of Greek and Hebrew uh, literature. I, I don't speak it. But I, I know how to go through a concordance. I know how to find out what the meaning of the word is. I know how to write out what the meaning of the word is. I know how to take a verse. And I used to do this in college. Take a verse and, and list out the words and write out the meaning of the words and then try to summarize this verse into one full meaning of the text. Ooh, let me tell you, the, the hyper-spiritualists around me did not like me doing that. What was I doing? These were things that I was learning in college. I was an English major. Uh, we, these structures, these things that we're, I'm telling you to do, this is almost verbatim what I learned in college on how to interpret text. God created language. God created the human mind, the way we work. And this is the way that we work. This, this, these patterns are there for a reason. So this is not something that's saying, hey, only pastors, only people who are preaching and in leadership should be able to do this. This is for everybody. Any, any literature has to be understood. If it wants to be understood properly, you have to go through this process. And for the Christian, if this is our great joy, if this is the meaning of our life to worship God by, by doing this with everything we have, well, this is, this is part of it. It may, be, it may be hard. Look, not everybody is going to be able to... Um, Open a passage of scripture and analyze it like D.A. Carson and write out this amazing doctoral thesis. We're not all, none of us, well, I don't know anybody today who is like C.H. Spurgeon, who can just open a text and put this all together in his mind and just preach from such a pulpit of grace. That's not the point. The point is not that every pastor who stands in this pulpit has to, to be the most uh, 
literate and, and hyper-intellectual person to have done these things. The point is the motive. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God's always looking at motive. Am I working towards understanding this text? Am I attempting to? Are you doing the best with what you have, with the talents and the gifts God's given you? Did God give you 10 talents? Did he give you five talents? Did he give you one? Are you burying it or are you using it? Are you using your eyes, your brain, your mind to work, to study, to interpret the text? Are the people in this pulpit, any person, I don't care if they come visit, are they working with their heart and their, their soul to try to present the word of God as the word of God declares itself. That's what we have to look at. So that's a, I didn't think I, I thought I would get farther, to be honest with you. I don't think any of you are surprised. I don't get very far sometimes. But uh, we will pick this up and we will continue on exegesis next week. Okay? And we'll talk more about it. Hopefully that was helpful. And hopefully it gives you a sense of, of what goes into uh, a sermon. You know, this is, this is something that preachers and pastors who are preaching the Word of God. Have you been hearing sermons that are full of the Word of God? Have you been hearing sermons that uh, expound the glories of heaven and Christ? Well, you're getting to see a little bit of what actually goes into a sermon. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. And then on top of that, to realize you're speaking the words of God. Oof, it's a heavy burden. That's why the Bible says not many of you should be preachers. It's a responsibility, and it's a, it's a weight. So, if anything, let's step away with a sense of uh, desiring for the integrity of the Word of God in our church, in our lives, and in our homes. Let's step away with that. And today, let's step away with some gratitude that God has given us a church with men who desire to do that and put a lot of effort uh, on, in their life to do this very thing. Amen? And encourage them with it. Also, uh, before we pray, just... Uh, if all of you, you see, I'm looking around here, just the sweetest people I know. Just look at you. You're all just the most wonderful people I know. You're, you're sweet and tender. And I, if you told me that I had, uh, you know, uh, uh, something in my hair, I would take it grace, graciously because you're so kind and loving. Uh, we are doing this series now. This is the second week and what will be a pretty long series, but it is integral to the health of our church. You sweet, loving, wonderful people who could tell me anything, grab somebody who's not here uh, today. Grab somebody who's not here next week. Encourage somebody that, hey, we're doing something foundational to the church, and this church needs you. Come to Bible study if you can, and just encourage somebody to come so they can hear the, what uh, a healthy church is built upon, okay? All right, good. I encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Oh, Lord, I'm always thanking you for your grace. Lord, it will be an eternity of thanking you for your grace. Lord, thank you that we are, we are Christians, Lord, that we serve the one true God. And that, Lord, unlike all these other fake religions and their idols without hands and without mouths and without eyes, Lord, we serve a real being. We have a real God that we can talk to. Help us to talk to you, Lord, to, to take advantage of this tremendous grace that we have, that we can talk to our God. That, Lord, you are 
a God who's not just sitting on some mighty throne with a hammer waiting to quash those who rebel against you, but Lord, you are a God who sent the word of God to us, that you spoke the word of God to Moses and you spoke the word of God to prophets and then you sent your son to reveal to us who the father is and what he looks like. And then you told us what is going to come and that one day we have this tremendous hope that we can stand with you face to face and we can awe in our God and we can fellowship with you and be with you, that you are not a God of distance, not a God who is just most high, but a God who is a father who loves us and desires to know us and desire to be with us and take care of us. And oh Lord, it's just so tremendous that Lord, you are so good like that. And here, Lord, you've given us this word. Help us not to speak of you in a way that you're not, to present you in a way that you are not, to somehow or another diminish the mighty and majesty of our God with poor preaching. Lord, please help us. Please help me. Oh, Lord, please help Isaac. Please help Alan. Lord, please help us as we do these things, how weighty it is. Lord, may your grace be on us that we may preach rightly the word of God. That we may present you at the standard and the highness that you are. And Lord, may we take this great grace that we have as Christians. That you have spoken to us through an infallible, perfected scripture. A whole and complete novel of the representation of God. That we may take this grace and we may just lavishly desire it with all of our soul. The pearl of great price. It's a field, Lord, and hidden in that field, buried is this great treasure. And when I open that treasure box, there it stands, the word of God. May you be praised and glorified in this place. Oh, Lord, help us, Lord, if there are any in here whose heart is tired and weary and they feel distant. Oh, Lord, please, Father, encourage their soul. May they be encouraged to know how much you love them. And Lord, if anybody in here, their body is so tired, they feel that they can't do what they used to do. Lord, may you remind them that you love them and you carry them and that you know, that you know what they're going through and that their lack of ability in their body has nothing to do with your love for them. Your grace is sufficient. May we rest in it. In your sweet name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.